This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs show here at 90.3 The Core, where we present important information on issues that impact Rutgers University and the entire central New Jersey community. I'm your host, Yashwant Wanchana. Today's show will cover a teach-in hosted by RUSA, the Rutgers University Student Assembly, on Monday, November 15th, 2010. The event covered issues like the school budget and how it's funded, the corporatization of both public and private universities, the recent attempt by Congress to reform the student loan process, and other factors contributing to the rising costs of higher education. This event will be presented in two parts, with the first part airing this week. We hope you enjoy it. Of the Rutgers University Student Assembly, I'm tonight's event. Um, up before you are 11 immensely talented individuals who work very hard to get the best presentation they can uh, for you. Um, but before I get started, there are a few um, people who I'd really like to thank. I really would like to thank the Union of Harvard ad- Administrators. Um, they provided some money for uh, advertising for the event. They were big, big, great help. So please let the team up hang around with us. Um, the executives for the Office of Budgeting and Resource Studies. They provide us with great um, and excellent uh, grab and, and, and statistics and really help us understand uh, the, the uh, Rutgers budget. So uh, please give them also a great big thanks. are uh, the two RISA advisors, um, Lori Smith and Kerry Wilson. Without them, it's been a good one to be They deserve the biggest round of applause. <laughs> so we're all here tonight to talk about one thing, and that is the rugged budget and the state of education today. Um, everyone here probably knows that across the, the, the country, tuition is rising. Um, and why, why is that? Um, what are what are the effects and what are some of the, the implications? Why is it happening? Um, it, it is a pretty new phenomenon which has greatly accelerated over the last ten years. Um, but the whole reason we put together this presentation was for the, the student body. Um, so we actually went out and talked to about how they felt about the Rutgers budget, the state of higher education. Um, and more personal things like student debt. And I'd like to pass the mic up to uh, Sophia over here to talk about these uh, surveys uh, that, that we took. Thirty-eight 
11.8% noticed substandard facilities. 11.8% had to delay graduation due to reduced course offerings. 7.3% noticed a decrease in student diversity, which is funny because we pride ourselves on being the most diverse school in the country. Right. In, in terms of paying for school, 67.3% had serious concerns about their ability to pay. One student's response was, this is a girl, yes, especially because I have a twin sister and I feel like it is really difficult because my parents pay double the money and I don't receive a lot of, I don't receive a lot of financial aid. It's really tragic. Because 92% knew someone personally who had serious concerns about paying for school. When we ask them about debt and loans, how much debt do you have? A good 6.7% said that they actually have less than $5,000. Um, 11.1% said that their debt is around five to $10,000. 22.9% said that their debt is around $20,000 to $40,000. 20, 22, okay, 27.1 said that their debt is around 40 to $60,000. 8.7% said that theirs is, I think, yeah, right, so let's go over this again. Some people have a, good, a debt of, uh, from, some people's debt is less, they have uh, around 5,000, which is good. Others, the majority that we interviewed, have something around from $20,000 to $100,000. So that is that is a lot of people and a lot of money that they have to pay back to the government. So where do students' loans come from? 60.5% said that their loans come from the government, which includes, you know, school-run organizations. 12.3% um, says that it comes from private loaners, lenders. And 27.2% said that it comes from both. All right, now this is, this is a good question. When we ask the students, do they think that they're getting their money's worth at Rutgers, only 35.8% said that yes, they do. And a whooping 42.8% said that they're not sure. And 21.4% said that no way, it's not worth it. So although a lot of students think, a lot of students aren't sure whether it's worth it or not, at least like a good portion says that it is. So who's responsible? All right. So when we handed out the surveys, we listed four uh, possibilities of people that, you know, students may think are responsible. Chris Christie in the state, Greg Shannon, the Rutgers football program, McCormick at the university, Obama and the federal government. 81% of students um, who, who marked one of the four said that they thought um, that Chris Christie and the state were most responsible. One student even wrote it, and Corzai, which proves that um, lack of funding for higher education is not only the problem of um, 
of just one government, a governor. It's a problem with many, especially in New Jersey. It's it's been around for a while. So um, then there was a category for the same question that stated um, other. So students were free to write in their own suggestions of who they thought was responsible. Ten percent said that all of the above. Um, a couple of students said that banks were responsible. Uh, my favorite was capitalism. Then one person wrote society and culture, another wrote economy, another one wrote unions, Republicans, inflation, and then the last one wrote whoever calls the show. Yeah. 
of the, the ultimate goal. Which records is right there. We have uh, we already raised about four hundred and seventy-five million dollars towards this one million dollar goal. And a lot of this money has already been spent. I'm sure most of you have heard about the um, new business school building that's going in on this campus, and that ten million dollar donation we received for that building. That was for our our future. As for the Bird Family seminars that are open to all first year students, also for our our future. And we also used that some of the donations for scholarships that have been open to students across campuses and across majors. Because I'm sure, as we all know, tuition has gotten a little high, so students are reaching out for scholarships. Which brings us to tuition, which is by far the next, the, the largest part of the revenue pie. Um, and this is where all of us should be concerned because tuition is the money that's coming from each and every one of the students. We all pay tuition and we all pay fees just so we can come here and get our education and get our properties at home at the end of our time spent here. Uh, tuition, I think it's important to know that in 2010, uh, $700 million were raised from tuition and fees out of a $2 billion budget. That's about 35% of the budget that has come from students. Um, and, and that's because tuition is the easiest way to raise this money. All you have to do is just increase tuition and have more money. Uh, however, I want to point out that at President Informant Annual Address back in September, he made this quote. As each day knows, the budget cuts to our schools would have been much further without the enrollment increases. At the same time, we know that we cannot enroll our way out of our budget problems. And that's important because we're eventually going to hit a brick wall where tuition is going to get to a point where students just can't pay it anymore. Um, and that's because the state funding for uh, higher education has been significantly decreasing over the past uh, few decades. And as you can see with this lovely chart here, uh, the red line is state aid and the blue line is what students pay. Um, in 1990, the state was paying a little over 65% of a student's education, and the student was only paying 35%. In 2011, that's actually reversed. Students were paying 65% of their own educational expenses, and the state is only paying 35%. And you can also see here that in 2004, that marks the first time that students are paying more money for their education Welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs show of 90.3 The Core. You're listening to a teach-in presented by RUSA, the Rutgers University Student Assembly, on the rising costs of higher education. University in the entire country, 
And at the same time, we have the highest tuition, and that's um, four-year and two-year college and university in the entire country. Um, and there's, oh, so if you go back to that one, you can see we are all the way at the end, highest tuition fees, and uh, we're kind of not getting crap, but the number is remains the same. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this, but one of them is that the state of New Jersey does not provide bond money to public universities. Can you hear me? No. No, we can hear you. Okay. So, um, since 1988, uh, New Jersey has not provided bond questions on ballots in elections, and this is a way that a lot of other states generate income or generate revenue to provide to universities. And like I said, New Jersey has not offered this as an option. Has not offered this as an option for funding universities since 1988. And this leads universities needing to borrow money from banks, just like an individual would, instead of acting as um, part of the state. Additionally, we have a lot of problems in the way in the way that we figure out funding. So New Jersey doesn't use a funding formula, which means universities don't know how much money they're going to get until the budget is produced in March. And that's the budget that they need to operate on in the following year, the following academic year. Um, we also don't use capacity formulas, which means that the budget is determined without taking into consideration what the actual needs of the university is going to be. So they don't use projected enrollment numbers or anything like that to provide funding to the universities. And the reason we always hear for why our funding is so low is budget crisis. And New Jersey has the third biggest deficit in the United States and is among the heaviest borrowers. And so we're always hearing about budget crisis, right? New Jersey's infamous for not managing its money well. But at the same time, we have one of the highest percentages of millionaires in the nation. We are way over here, second only to Hawaii. So we have lots and lots of millionaires in the state of New Jersey. Which begs the question, why this past summer did we not instate a millionaire's tax? If we're so broke and we need money so badly, um, and we're so worried about our deficit, we could have made $600 million in tax revenue if we had, if we could apply a millionaire's tax. But this summer we had our opportunity and it failed. It died on the floor. And then we have to wonder what are priorities in New Jersey for spending. Um, and you can see on the slide it says that corrections has increased at two times the rate of higher education. Um, and the implications of this are that uh, more students, especially minority backgrounds, wind up um, in prison than in college housing, which I think is kind of problematic and makes us, I think, need to question our state's priorities. Thank you, Ben. Um, so 
We do in, in New Jersey. We take a, a particular model to funding higher education. Um, it's simply known as the uh, high tuition, high aid. So although the tuition keeps going up and maybe considered relatively high um, as compared to other states, um, we we give a lot of aid to offset this uh, trend. Um, can we have Nicole come up and, and, and talk about what exactly the financial aid picture is in New Jersey and if we're kind of keeping this promise?
current to the present time, but financially has decreased dramatically. Nevertheless, as uh, Dr. Baum of the College Board said, we are encouraged by significant increases in financial aid under the current economic conditions, however, families are still struggling to pay to pay for to pay for college. And this also brings up the Okay, so furthermore, furthermore, over the past year, the amount of financial aid has increased by 51% for undergrads and 40% for grads. However, lots of students are still paying the sticker price or close to it. When applying to school, students do not know the amount that they're going to be paying, the amount of financial aid they'll receive until the institution tells them themselves. And even though millions are being helped, tax credits do not benefit all students. Decrease in state funding, increasing in institutional expenditures, institutional prestige, and decreases in individual students' purchasing power has contributed to an affordability crisis. Furthermore, we are looking here at the different reductions in financial aid that has affected Rutgers University and the state of New Jersey. You can see that there's the New Jersey classroom, which which had, which had its funding de depleted, meaning that students will have to start paying back this loan while they're still receiving their education. And then there's the EOF funds, which were part of, there's a 4% increase in tuition at Rutgers. However, there's an increase in state funding, which led to many students getting a, a huge decrease in their financial aid. And how, nevertheless, even though there are these cuts, Rutgers University is one of, is very good when it comes to granting financial aid to students. Rutgers granted over $91 million this past year. Nevertheless, students are still struggling. Now, when students struggle amongst financial aid, they oftentimes turn towards the private sector and look for loans. This graph here demonstrates that over the past decade to the year 2007, the amount of private loans that were taken out were increased by, by quite a bit. And that was 17 billion as of 2008, which is $1.5 billion increase than like a decade ago. Now, you might be wondering what the demographics of the people that are taking out the private loans are. These people generally are, there's a large portion that are just middle class, upper middle class students that are taking out private loans. However, if we look at race and ethnicity, it is more likely for an African American student to take out a private loan than another than another student. All, furthermore, loans come loans are off, oftentimes backed up by marketing techniques that try to get people to get loans instead of going to federal loans, and also. Sometimes parents or families or students would rather take out a private loan than a federal loan. <clears throat> Finally, we reach to the unfavorable costs of private loans. Private loans can have the highest interest rates. These are interest rates that would be much higher than any federal program, and they range between five and nineteen percent. And students, unlike if they had a federal loan are not eligible for important deferment, income-based repayment, or loan forgiveness. Overall, private loans are the riskiest way to finance your education. 
students and families should try to look at for all possible federal financial aid means that they possibly can before they resort to, to private lands. Thanks, Nicole. Um, so, <laughs> a very interesting stat from the College Board, um, in, in this, unfortunately they, they weren't able to give this stat in uh, 2010, but in 2007, um, for four-year public colleges, um, the raise in financial aid only accounted for 50% of the raises in uh, tuition um, over, 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 over that year from, from 2006 to, to, to 2007. Um, so it does bring up a pretty questionable thing about how much are we getting enough financial aid? What is it out there for students? And is it, and is it meeting the, the need that is generated by some of our really awesome uh, universities? Um, but now, because it comes very interesting and very personal part. Um, education is always talked about as an in investment, right? And, and it really truly is. Um, but now it's starting to become a, a big concern of how much of investment are you making and how much are you going to have to pay back when Eric talked about student debt and, and what that means. Welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs show of 90.3 The Core. You're listening to a teach-in presented by RUSA, the Rutgers University Student Assembly, on the rising costs of higher education. So, hey everybody, um, how you doing? Um, increasing debt is something that we've all seen in the news headlines recently. Um, in the housing market, um, increase that was making um, uh, a lot of headlines with foreclosures and with the uh, uh, collapse of a lot of major banks and the federal bailout that um, you may remember was 800, uh, something around 800 million dollars um, was infused into the banking system. And um, uh, we've heard about how consumer debt has increased over the past several decades. So the American um, household is more in debt than it was three decades ago. But something that we haven't heard a lot about until recently, and we're just starting to hear more about, is student debt. So we want to continue that trend of hearing a lot about student debt because we think it's a really important issue. Um, for the first time this June, the Wall Street Journal reported, based on information from the Federal Reserve, that student debt had surpassed credit card debt. So overall, Americans actually owe more for their education than they do for all their other consumer spending combined. Um, uh, but what do we expect? We heard from the previous speaker, you have higher tuition, you have more financial aid in the form of loans, and more leftover tuition being covered by private loans. These phenomena are not brand new, but they're reaching new levels um, uh, that have never been reached before. So the story gets worse because student loans aren't the only way that students go into debt to pay for college. The average college student graduates with over $4,000 in credit card debt. This is up over $1,000 since 2004. The number of freshmen with a zero credit card balance has dropped from 69% in 04 to only 15% today. And the number one reason that students cited for using a credit card was that they didn't have the savings or financial aid to cover all the costs. The problem of debt, um, uh, the problem of debt is um, goes beyond just the problem of high tuition, not enough financial aid. Tuition going up is one thing, but once the tuition raise forces you to take out a loan, whether a public or a private loan, your education cost becomes more expensive because you now have to pay interest. Interest is what you pay to a lender in addition to the tuition and fee money that actually goes to pay for the school. Interest rates range from uh, I think 5 to 19%, like uh, Nicole said before. Um, 
I tend to do that. Uh, at the time of the American Revolution, interest in all 13 colonies was capped at only 6%. The Bible, Torah, and Quran all have moral rules against usury and the charging of excessive interest because it's seen as exploitative to take advantage of someone in need. In this case, students who need money for education money. Um, in addition to interest, lenders also charge regular fees as well as fines or penalties for late payment. This system can make it difficult for someone to get out of even a small amount of debt because they have to put their money towards interest and fees instead of being able to pay off just the amount that they borrowed. All this extra money adds up to a lot for lenders. In fact, in its 2004 annual report, Sally May, the largest originator of student loans, reported that debt management revenue was up 30%, more than any other revenue stream. Um, but that's all dollars and cents. That's all um, about like the quantity and the amount that the number is actually going up, which is very intimidating for a lot of people while they're still in school. Some people are able to defer their loans. Some people have started to pay back their loans already. Um, uh, but what we really came here tonight to talk about and to really try to emphasize was how this actually affects people's lives, like both in the here and now, but also in the future. You may be seeing it affect older siblings or whoever it is that you know that has debt. Um, uh, and the real, what debt really means, and this is a phrase that I, that I took from someone else, but um, it means lost opportunity. It means it's something that you're not gonna be able to do that you wouldn't be able to do in the past. Um, so one thing we learned that uh, debt means for people is it means stress. Remember we said 67% of people at Rutgers that we interviewed said that they had serious concerns related to paying their own tuition. And 92% of people said they knew someone who had serious concerns. But beyond stress, it's like I said, those things that you're no longer able to do. Students who are highly leveraged, as in they have a lot of debt compared to what they're able to produce in income, will have trouble taking out loans to do things like buy a car, buy a home, or start a business. Students in debt are obligated to get a job immediately to cover the costs of debt, as opposed to taking time off to develop or travel. They're more likely to choose a job based solely on salary and less to consider what their career is and what they want to do with their lives. Um, the New York Times reported that Mr. Boy, now 24, quickly gave up her dream to work in an overseas refugee camp. The pay, she said, would have been enough for me, but not for Sally May, her lender. <laughs> so the, the point is kind of there that people are no longer able to make the decisions that people weren't able to make in the past. And like, the thing we really want to emphasize to you, and I kind of brush over the graph, but I think people saw it and they, and they get the implication that um, debt has doubled in the last 10 years. Um, so this is not something that like, oh, whoa, you, you, everyone knows what it's like, it's something our parents have been through. This is a completely new phenomenon that people do not um, expect. And based on what happened with the foreclosure crisis, I think we have to pay very close attention to, to what this means. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is employers consider credit scores when selecting employees. Um, uh, there's lots of states that are considering laws to bar this. Um, uh, but the fact is that they go to um, credit score reporting people. So if you basically have trouble paying back your student loans, you're also going to have trouble getting a good job, which would in turn help you pay back your student loans. So that's just another way that you're kind of getting stuck in that. Um, no, actually, that's not. The other big thing that uh, may affect some people in the room we've heard about is um, the expression boomerang kids. That's because 85% of uh, college graduates now move back in with their parents. Um, uh, this is another new phenomenon. It used to be possible that once you graduate with an undergraduate degree, you could live on your own like a regular person, but that doesn't seem to be the case for most people who graduated from college. Um, uh, and the other thing that people say is, oh, college debt, just like they used to tell people about a home, right? College debt is good debt. It's good debt. You don't even want that debt because it means you're going to get a good job and you're going to pay off that debt. 
Unfortunately, what we're seeing more and more in our economy, what I think a lot of people here already know, I don't have to show you, graph to tell you, you can't guarantee you're going to get a job. And all other people who are getting jobs, you can't guarantee you're going to get a job in your chosen field. You may be working um, in retail, um, uh, unfortunately. Um, the other thing I want to say is that um, our generation, maybe the first generation, not be as well off in our parents. And just in the past two years, the unemployment rate for college graduates has doubled to 9%. <coughs> Um, so I gave you a little bit of information about how this is, um, system is bad for us and how it hurts students and how much debt we accumulate. So this isn't a system that just hurts students. This is a system that's actually stealing um, uh, or indebting everyone in society. And that's, that's what I want to say. For students, um, and and again, like the, they say, the average person comes out with about twenty-four thousand dollars worth of, of debt, um, and that's just the average. Some will come out with with less than that, and some will come out with with much more than that. And it is starting to become a, a more serious problem. And it's something for us to, to really think about, like what what are the implications right of this system, and where are we going to be going? Um, let's talk a little bit about the history of student debt, like what happened, what is it, I'm going to uh, talk to Kevin over here, and he's going to talk about it. Hi everybody, uh, my name is Kevin, and I'm here to tell you about how student debt and loans have changed over the years. Alright, so it all started in 1965 when Lyndon B. Johnson signed uh, the Higher Education Act, and this allowed federally, uh, federal grants Oh, federally granted loans and scholarships became available to students at this time. Then, in 1978, the Bankruptcy Reform Act passed, which, what happened was, a lot of graduate students were claiming bankruptcy as soon as they graduated as a means of erasing their debt. And in order to counteract that, um, there was a waiting period for discharging the debt that was five years, and then this was, it was increased to seven years in 1990. In 1988, Congress decreed that federal student loan debt can no longer be discharged by claiming bankruptcy. Loans for education, interestingly enough, are the only kinds of loans subjected to this inescapable form of debt. And in 2005, these same protections now apply to private student lenders. So, all student loan debt is impossible to escape via bankruptcy. Additional protections from student loans were the statute of limitations on collections, the right to refinance, fair debt collection, Practices Act and the Truth and Lightning Act. What this means is it can make you subject to wage garnishments without a court order, suspension of your state professional licenses, garnishment of social security and disability income benefits, also withholding of IRS tax refunds, all from private banks and institutions that you owe money to. But why put students in this position? The reason is, is because it makes other people money. It's extremely profitable to the banks. So what happens is, when you default on a student loan, the government pays the firm the balance of the loan plus interest. To them, it was a no-risk loan from the start. They were guaranteed to get the money back as soon as you gave them your signature. The government then employs a collection agency to get the money from you, so they get the money for them. Now, interestingly enough, these uh, collection agencies are often owned by the same company you loaned, that loaned you money, so they essentially get the double dip into your back pocket when you default. Now, so the firm eventually gets a huge return with no risk, and the government also gets the money back through the collection agency. And that's how they make their money, but they, this also benefits the school. 
And how, you ask? It's because if the governments and banks profit so much from you defaulting on your loan, that gives them no incentive to control the tuition rates that public schools impose upon you. Because higher tuition prices means more people will have to take out higher loans. More people taking out higher loans means more defaults. More defaults mean more money for the bank and the government. Because student loans guarantee incomes for colleges and universities and financial institutions, regardless of whether or not you can actually afford them. Because the government fully insures the financial institution's payment to the school. The sad truth is, to all 20% of all government student loans default. At community colleges, it's 30%. At two-year colleges, like you may see on TV, like DeVry and whatnot, that's 40%. And it's becoming a for-profit business. Every time you enroll, banks get excited because it means you need to take out a loan you can possibly default on. There is hope. In March 2010, under Obama, the Student Aid and Financial Responsibility Act was passed. And this helps college more afford- this helps college become more affordable for students by it invested in thirty-six dollars over the ten over ten years thirty-six billion. <laughs> thirty-six billion dollars to the Pell Grant scholarships, which will be implemented over ten years. It makes federal loans easier to repay by limiting payments of fifteen percent of your uh, insert discretionary income. And this will become ten percent in twenty fourteen, by the way, so that's cool too. And it also invests $2.55 billion to uh, historically black colleges and also minority-serving uh, institutions. And also what it does, it cuts the banks out of uh, the federal loans. Uh, what, you could, what used to happen was you could go to um, a private lender such as Sally May, and they, you could actually get a federal loan through them. But under this act, you can no longer do that. You can only get it through the direct loan program, which is straight through the federal government. So the banks can no longer collect subsidies on your defaults. Oh, yeah, and uh, this also saves taxpayers $61 billion over the next 10 years. Thank you. So it's, it's, it's very interesting what form student loans have taken and what form they, they, they will take over the next um, 10, 15, 20 years or so. Um, and it's actually very important that, that SAFRA did, did get passed because it, it did help a lot of students. It's also saying taxpayers $61 billion over the course of about 10 years. Um, so a lot of it um, is changed and, and getting better because people, people at, at all levels, the state uh, and federal and even up to the, you know, the big man himself, President Obama, realized that this is not a, a sustainable system and something may need to be done about the way people are paying for higher education. Let's talk, talk about, a little more about the banks themselves. I'm going to go with Joel. He's going to talk a little, a little more about the effects of the banks. Welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs show of 90.3 The Core. You're listening to a teach-in presented by RUSA, the Rutgers University Student Assembly, on the rising costs of higher education. Loans, banks, this is how we as students afford to go to Rutgers. The public sector divestment of education has created an entirely new generation of students. We always hear stories from our parents or the older generations and how they worked their way through school, how holding down only one or two jobs allowed them to pay for their education. These are the same people who take no pity in our generation as we struggle to pay for school. They call us lazy or entitled 
that bore us with their stories of how they paid for school. <laughs> I, I've been lectured many times. And they're wrong. Um, when they were in school, government paid for education. School was heavily subsidized because it was seen as an investment in the future. Today, however, our tax dollars go to far more important areas like war and keeping potheads in jail. <laughs> the demand for school still exists, but the money does not. This is where private banks come in. They fill the void the government has created. These private banks are able to give us all free money. We are a good investment, we graduate, and make more money than the generation before us. But now, fewer and fewer people are able to afford school, and banks are the only option. This allows banks to charge ridiculous rates because there is no alternative from other organizations. There are not enough government loans to appease all the students that need it. These banks are the ones who are making money from education. Banks are the ones who create all these advertisements. Um, they are the ones who fuel the record enrollment in school. At every involvement fair here at Rutgers, the banks always have a huge presence. Nothing is done to protect the most vulnerable class, students, from this predatory lending. The greater number of students that can't afford school without loans, the greater the profit reaped by the banks. In fact, most of the banks are actually owned by the same people. For example, Bank of America owns Merrill Lynch, um, and Wachovia is actually owned by Wells Fargo. All of our money ends up in the hands of a very few select number of people. While students control very little capital in the markets and struggle to make ends meet, these banks walk with billions of dollars. Poor college kids do not have lobbyists. Big banks do. The banks are the ones who are motivated to keep the status quo. We stand on one side as students already in debt, while on the other side are the banks. Who do you think is winning this fight? Why would a government invest more money in school to appease students when these banks earn a record profit? These banks spend millions of various lobbyist schemes every year to keep us, the students, poor and desperate for our loans. Sally May is the largest student lender in the country, and these guys started out as a public entity uh, to help us students. Uh, now they are a privatized corporation exploiting poor college students for incredible profits. Sally May has even employed felons to work as their personal loan sharks in collecting from us students. John Boehner, the future Speaker of the House, has received over $122,000 from the Sally May Political Action Committee. And any politician can make a state budget work by simply cutting education. There, there is some hope. Uh, SAFRA has passed. The federal government has closed one of these scams, at least. Tax money no longer subsidizes the private student loans. Instead, that money comes directly to us. This is good news, but the amount of money the government gives us is still not nearly enough to pay for the ballooning cost of school. Money talks, and we as students are a hot commodity. Our debt is traded and sold back and forth. As students, we are forced to live in poverty while the CEOs are buying yachts with our money. As government defunds our future, private banks make profit from our pain. These facts are not part of the public discourse. Uh, the banks, the politicians, they don't care about us. Eventually, school will become a privilege only for the wealthiest people. In order for us to change anything, discussion of these issues is needed. Education, like we are doing right now, is the catalyst for action. The future of our school is in our hands. If we want to see a change, then it is up to us.
we definitely want to bring up tonight is that this is not just a trend local to New Jersey. As you mentioned previously before, this is a, a national trend. And all over the country, people are experiencing a lot of the same effects with student loans. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty ubiquitous thing. And to kind of talk about some of these larger trends in um, the, the economy, we're going to hand over to Andrew. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew. Um, and I'd like to emphasize that what's happening at Rutgers is not an isolated incident by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I'd like to discuss exactly how this, how this is in a little more detail. Um, perhaps you've heard a grandparent talk about how much a dollar got you in years past compared to today. You know, you could have ridden the New York subway for 15 cents instead of the $2 it costs now. Um, this decline in the amount of dollar buys is called inflation, and it's an inevitable part of the way our economy works. Depending on how fast it's happening, it can be perfectly normal or disastrous. As the value of the dollar declines, prices and wages generally rise. However, tuition has risen much faster than the rate of inflation. The rate varies depending on how you calculate it, but for many colleges, the cost has increased about four times faster than inflation. Meanwhile, Government budgets often remain the same in dollar amounts or even rise, but still end up declining in real terms relative to the worth of the, of the dollar because they do not keep up with inflation. At the same time, average wages for the overwhelming majority of American families have not risen to keep up with inflation. The, the predictable result being the statistics you see on the screen. Consequently, student debt, as, my, as, my pre, as the previous speakers have mentioned, has risen dramatically as the only way families can pay for education with lower loans is through debt. This is another graph demonstrating uh, the rise of tuition relative to inflation and median family income. Um, these measures are steps deliberately taken by federal, state, and municipal governments for roughly 30 years now. The ruling consensus aggressively promotes the view that government is ineffectual and wherever possible its functions should be privatized. This view has been challenged for many years among academics and economists, but it continues to shape policy, as we see with Obama making permanent the Bush tax cuts and proposing a spending freeze. Also, due to a lack of, of planning on the part of many state governments, tuition is frozen or cut during times of economic boom, which sounds really good at first. It means that students have to pay less tuition when they go to public institution. But, as I said, they don't plan ahead, and during times of economic crisis, the, the tuition is, it rises dramatically. Um, this means that the students have to pay more tuition pre at precisely the moment when they have the least ability to pay. Both of these policies are irrational given the challenges faced by the US today. And they're not just happening in New Jersey, as I said. Despite strong indicators and arguments by many economists that privatization and deregulation contributed to the current crisis, cutbacks continue. In many places, the crisis has been an opportunity to privatize things that otherwise wouldn't be for sale, like roads and bridges. We saw this here with Governor Corzine's idea to sell the New Jersey Turnpike. Across the Atlantic in England, the ruling coalition in Parliament <coughs> is introducing huge fees, the likes of which have never been seen before. France just had a massive wave of protests against cutbacks in its pension system. Los Angeles just turned over a third of its public schools to be run by private companies. Here at Rutgers, the local independent bookstores have been taken over by a large corporation. All of this is related to the policy changes I mentioned earlier, which have been happening for the past 30 years. Cutbacks do not help countries recover in the long run. Empirical data show that countries with higher rates of public spending are less severely affected by economic crises like the one we just had, 
than those with less spending. Had we been investing more in education and other public goods over the past 30 years, the current crisis would be looking a lot less bleak. But where we are now, many vital government functions are being sold off to the well-connected friends of politicians in the business community. These decisions are often made by politicians without any public votes, referenda, and absolutely no accountability. Um, but as I said, there is an alternative. In the 1930s, we did, have, we did have high rates of public sector spending, and that's exactly what got us out of the Great Depression. It was called the New Deal. Um, I want to emphasize that there are, despite how bad it is with the global economy, there are, remain alternatives available to us. It's up to us as to whether or not we want to choose them. Thank you. So I'm going to have John Cobb talk a little bit about what happens when, when to, what happens to a public university as state support starts to disappear. Hey everyone, my name is John Asprey, and uh, I've been uh, doing a little bit of research on how universities respond uh, to shrinking state support because, like Andrew said, and many of the other speakers have said, this is not an isolated phenomenon here at Rutgers, uh, but something affecting uh, public schools across the country and even across the world. Um, so the first thing that happens is that public schools start to act like private universities. Um, they, for example, the endowment um, here at the university uh, is now a source of revenue. Uh, we actually seek private donations uh, created through large fundraising operations. Uh, the endowment here is run by the Rutgers University Foundation. You, some folks might know it as Telefund. Um, uh, and uh, basically, uh, private universities provide revenue to the, uh, or I'm sorry, endowments provide revenue to the school, uh, but also invest uh, uh, much of the money in the stock market in order to uh, increase returns. Um, the second thing that private universities do that public universities are starting to do uh, is focus on earmarked donations. Uh, earmarked donations are donations, donations from private donors that are earmarked for a specific project or, uh, or construction or department. You know, it varies, but like su such examples are professorships or building a new building. Um, one example uh, I want to note is the Bush Visitor Center. Uh, Bush Visitor Center, for example, was funded uh, through $2.5 million in private donations, um, but a total cost of $7.5 million. So the question is, while money is being provided from private donors uh, to help, help run the university, uh, does, does letting private donations set the standard of, what, of which project should be funded uh, by not only private funds but public funds, uh, is that the right way to go? And that's just a question to consider. Um, another thing that happens to public universities is then they have to start uh, acting like corporations a little bit. They have to start focusing on uh, running like a business, um, and you know, private universities—they're—they're they're private, but they're—they're they're also nonprofit institutions. Uh, but they've been doing this a while, so public institutions have to even ramp it up a little bit further than them. So there's an emphasis on branding and image creation. The idea is that you have to, in order to increase enrollment and continue uh, bringing revenue into the university, you have to brand the university as providing a special service, your university specifically. So you have to increase funding to marketing sectors and public relations sectors of the university, money that could otherwise be going to education. Um, I just want to continually remind folks that this isn't so much a, a judgment on individual universities because the whole thing is this is the reaction to larger trends. 
Um, of course, like there are decisions that can be made, but the trends are are in many ways uh, m- determine the actions of, of various universities. Uh, so sort of putting their Jersey Roots Global Reach is sort of an example of our own efforts to brand uh, the university uh, as uh, as a very you know as a very, has a very evocative feeling that we're you know we're really in Jersey, but we're so diverse and we 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 spread out our efforts so much. Um, but the issue with marketing universities is it treats education like a product to be bought and sold. You don't buy an education, you buy a degree. Uh, this, might, this is actually how a lot of students treat it, and, uh, and it's realistic. But I mean, at least I, I sort of hold this ideal representation of, of, of college as something above, above these concerns of, of you know, commodities and like you basically turning education to a product. It's more than that. It should be an experience in personal development. And I mean, that's, it, it's both of these things, but there are like contradictions that emerge between these two ideas in practice and in theory. So another F, um, aspect of acting like corporations is raising revenues. You have to raise tuition. You also focus on corporate sponsorships. You know, basically you're working with certain firms who, if you, if you contract with them as the sole, uh, sole business partner, you, uh, you, can get ad, you can get discounts or like added, added uh, profits that. Also something is industrial academic partnerships. Uh, what this is, is in lieu of state funding for like research, schools will accept donations for specific earmarked equipment uh, for like various companies. So like for example, like Novartis as a firm working on, I, I believe it was a, a plant science project, uh, bought some equipment for uh, UC Berkeley uh, about a decade ago with the contracted agreement that intellectual property, the actual knowledge and research produced (coughs) there at the university, um, was sort of up for sale to Novartis. They basically got first dibs on one third of the the intellectual property and basically the patents uh, produced by the university. So this is real serious. We're actually selling the knowledge of the university in exchange for the very machinery to produce it. It's kind of weird. And of course, cutting costs. Bigger class sizes, online courses, uh, you reduce the labor you have to you, you have to put in. Uh, you can decrease the really the, the amount of maintenance it, it takes to, to teach a course. Cuts or um, freezes in salaries. And also uh, another trend is hiring TAs and part-time lecturers because they cost us. Full-time faculty, well, they uh, as you know they have rights through tenure. They they are less easy to hire and fire, and they also work full time, so they get certain benefits. Part-time lecturers work on a, a contract basis through classes, and so that basically this is actually a, a result of something called degree inflation. Like inflation with money, where the more money there is, the less each, each dollar is worth. The more degrees there are, the less and less each degree becomes worth in the market. So you have a lot of PhD students who really need to pay off their student loans, but there are less jobs for PhD students or people with PhDs because they don't need that many professors in academia. So they'll work for basically nothing. It's pretty easy to exploit that power dynamic. And sometimes things really just really risky decisions get, get made. Uh, using Rutgers again as an example, the $102 million stadium expansion uh, is a plan on raising $30 million in private donations with the rest to be paid in $72 million in bonds, basically meaning that uh, the university would issue bonds uh, which it would, to uh, investors, which it would repay after the bonds matured in uh, 30 years uh, with, a, with interest, so with, with, a, with a yield on it. Uh, but what actually happened is that the uh, private donation campaign, supposed to be led by, uh, by Governor Corzine and uh, I believe it's uh, State Senator Lesniak, 
didn't raise that much money. And so what actually happened uh, was they had to scale back their plans. They issued uh, 280 million in variable, or, I'm sorry, 80 million in variable rate uh, bonds. I, I believe that another fact figure said 85, so I'm not sure on that. And also 17 million in short-term loans to meet the $102 million costs. <laughs> the university has outstanding debts of almost 1.3 billion. Uh, now, this is not a, an attack on the football program. I, I, I'm actually a, a, a big fan of the team here. I just, I guess the thing is like, you can like cars, but you shouldn't buy a Ferrari if you don't have money for rent. And so that's like, that's really the problem. That's really, so like, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, Thank you for listening to part one of the Rusa Teaching on the rising cost of higher education. You can listen to part two next week. If you have any comments, questions, or topics for a future core of the matter, you can email us at publicaffairsdirector at thecore.fm. If you won't be at a radio next week, you can podcast the show at thecore.fm. I'm Yashwant Manjanath, and you've been listening to Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. You've been listening to The Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. Opinions expressed on The Core of the Matter are those of the participants only, and not necessarily those of WVPHFM or Rutgers University. 